0: On today's morning show, we are examining the life and legacy of an extraordinary athlete and extraordinary man, Jackie Robinson. We're doing so uh, through a book called 42 Today, Jackie Robinson and His Legacy. And for the sake of anyone listening who doesn't understand that title, 42 was the number on Jackie Robinson's uh, baseball uniform. And uh, it's actually a number which has been permanently and completely retired from Major League Baseball in honor of Jackie Robinson and who he was and what he achieved. In this book, edited by my morning show guest, Michael G. Long, uh, we hear from a number of different writers uh, in an array of essays, uh, each of which focuses on a different aspect of who Jackie Robinson was, what he meant to the game of baseball, what he meant to the civil rights movement, and uh, the ways in which he was widely misunderstood both then and to this very day. It's a fascinating book. Michael G. Long uh, actually has written in the past uh, about uh, Jackie Robinson, and uh, so this is just uh, his latest effort to help us uh, better understand uh, this important figure from uh, the 20th century. Uh, The book is published by uh, New York University Press. Again, it's titled, 42 Today, Jackie Robinson and His Legacy. And Michael G. Long, we welcome you to the morning show.
1: Thanks, Craig. It's great to be with you. From Snowy, Pennsylvania.
0: Very good. Could we begin by uh, finding out just why you have this uh, intense interest in Jackie Robinson? Where did this interest uh, begin? And has the reason for your interest, in a sense, changed or evolved over the years?
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating question because I didn't get into Jackie Robinson through his baseball career, which is really interesting to me. Uh, But I was in California, actually, researching Richard Nixon. And I was at the Presidential Archives there. And an archivist came up to me and asked me if I had seen the Jackie Robinson file. And I hadn't, but I was very excited to see it. So the archivist brought out this thick file of letters between Robinson and Richard Nixon. They were friends and colleagues for quite some time. And when I was reading through those letters, I got hooked. I mean, this was a man I didn't know was so intensely interested in politics. And so after I read through the file, I wondered what I should do with these uh, letters. And I went back to my hotel that night, and I saw another show on Athletes Gone Bad. So I thought to myself, well, maybe I should uh, put out Robinson's example yet again. And after that, I contacted Rachel Robinson, Jackie's widow. She calls him Jack, by the way, and uh, asked permission to write or to edit a letter, a collection of his letters about sports and civil rights and politics. And she was very gracious and gracious enough to give me permission. So that's really how I got interested in Robinson. I got interested through his uh, politics and trying to advance first-class citi- citizenship for black Americans interesting how uh, did he have my go ahead
0: so so the fact that he was a baseball player was a rather incidental matter to you so you you don't come to this as necessarily a baseball fan or someone who played baseball or someone who followed his career. Uh, it's in a sense kind of th- through an entirely different door that you uh, connect with Jackie Robinson uh, in the first place.
1: Yeah that's absolutely right. My prime interest was in politics and civil rights. And it turned out that I discovered that he was an informal civil rights leader. In fact, that's how Rachel uh, describes him, as an informal civil rights leader. And I discovered that from 1956 to 1972, he devoted his life uh, to advancing civil rights for Black Americans. And really, that was the hook for me. You know, he had a stellar baseball career. I don't want to diminish that by any stretch of the imagination, you know, he's elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame on the first round, batted 311, stole home, played 19 times, and the list just goes on and on. But really the prime catch for me was the civil rights.
0: Interesting. So I assume that that collection that you are talking about, that you uh, received permission to uh, to uh, publish uh, from uh, from Jackie Robinson's widow, is First Class Citizenship, the Civil Rights Letters of Jackie Robinson.
1: That's correct. That was my first book on Robinson, and it was an an effort to introduce people to Jackie Robinson beyond home plate, beyond baseball. Uh, In many ways, I think, Greg, we've sheltered Robinson. We've restricted him to the baseball diamond. Then more than that, we sort of uh, stuck him in 1947, the year he shattered uh, Major League Baseball's color barrier. And we've depicted him sort of as a one-dimensional figure through the years, as somebody uh, in 1947 who uh, slid into bases and got up and dusted uh, dust off his uniform and did it very politely and gently. He turned his cheek in 1947. He was safe for all of us in white America. He was non-threatening. And I grew up uh, knowing Jackie Robinson primarily through the young children's books that depicted him as a smiling uh, baseball player who was uh, turning the other cheek and breaking the barrier. And First Class Citizenship, as well as this most recent book, 42 Today, really tries to uh, deepen our understanding of Robinson, to push it beyond that one dimensional figure that many of us uh, grew up knowing.
0: Hmm. I really love the format of this book in which we hear from a, a wide array of, of different uh, authors and I think uh, more than a dozen different essays. I'm always fascinated to, to learn of how a book like this takes shape. Uh, I mean, do you go after the writers first or do you go after the topics first? And uh, are you concerned about too much overlap or, or writers? writing in sort of contradictory terms, contradicting one another in what they have to say about Jackie Robinson. Take us inside kind of the nuts and bolts of, first of all, how you assembled these essays and, uh, and in a sense what kind of guidance you tried to exert in terms of shaping what this book would be or did you just let it sort of spring into being however it was going to spring into being on its own?
1: Wow, you're taking me back, and this is a bit of a curveball, which is good. I always like
0: curveballs. (laughs) You're welcome.
1: So I wanted wanted an all-star team, and I know people who have written about Robinson through the years. And so I really went after the all-star team first and then tried to shake down the topics. Uh, I knew mostly what the writers had written about Robinson as well. So I knew what they were uh, experts in. So I did try to assign them topics that I knew that they were uh, really well-versed in. And then I tried to organize the book around different topics, and it's sort of a chronological approach. I look at foundations, what really fueled Robinson early on to become such a courageous, heroic figure. Then I move into his baseball years, and then his civil rights years. So I've organized it. Uh, really to match the flow of his life. But, yeah, I was always concerned about overlap, and so I was constantly in touch with writers about making sure they knew what other writers were writing about. I really didn't concern myself about people taking issue with other writers who appeared in the book. In fact, one of the writers uh, takes a really nice swipe at my own work. (laughs) (laughs) Was I I tempted to edit it out? (laughs) No, I really wasn't. I really appreciate the back and forth and uh, some of the oppositional themes that appear in the book as well.
0: We're speaking with Michael G. Long about a book that has just been published that he edited, a book called 42 Today, Jackie Robinson and His Legacy. And as we've just been talking about, uh, it is a collection of more than a dozen really outstanding essays that examine Jackie Robinson and his legacy uh, in, in various ways. Uh, one of the things that uh, I think is really intriguing uh, in this book that is about a lot more than baseball and uh, about a lot more than, than Jackie Robinson's baseball career um, is, is one question that I never really stopped to think about, and that is why Branch Rickey sought out Jackie Robinson. To be the trailblazer, to be the first black major league baseball player, and um, we're actually told that that uh, that some of the easy answers that have sprung up around that question probably are not actually entirely true, and that uh, there are ways in which Jackie Robinson was was uh, a somewhat unlikely choice uh, to be this. First major league black baseball player. Tell us uh, a little more about this intriguing question about why Jackie Robinson.
1: Sure. There are lots of different theories about why Ricky chose Robinson. And rather than go through them all, maybe I'll just give you my take on why he chose Robinson. Uh, Jackie Robinson was not the best black baseball player available. There were many others who were even more exceptional than Robinson was, and he was an all-star player, even in the Negro league. So I want to be clear about that. What else I found? Well, I'm sorry, Greg, stumble here because it's a really complicated question. So he wasn't the best baseball player he also had a really fiery temper. In fact, one of his friends in the Negro Leagues said he had a temper like a rattlesnake. (laughs) So Ricky had this man in front of him who was a good player, wasn't the best player. He had a temper like a rattlesnake. So those were issues of concern. But Ricky didn't want somebody like Campanella early on who was so mild in disposition. He wanted somebody who would be on the baseball diamond, appearing as if he would explode in fury, but also turning the other cheek at the same time. That was incredibly difficult to do. And Ricky thought that he found that man with that type of character, an explosive character, but one that could be kept in check and Jackie Robinson, hmm. which is a really fascinating to me. So he went after Robinson, not only for his exceptional baseball skills, but also because he knew that Robinson knew that there was a greater cause out there and that he would check this temper that, that Ricky admired at the same time. Uh, so he, was, he went after Robinson primarily, I think, uh, for his character, hmm. a character that was explosive that was fiery, but also a character that could see the greater good and sacrifice for it in the short term. Robinson was not a peaceful character by any stretch of the imagination. He was not nonviolent. In his nature, he was fiery, and he was one who was inclined to hit back. Ricky knew this, and he wanted somebody like that. But he also took out uh, Giovanni Papini's *The Life of Christ* at the time was a popular book, and he went to the passage where Jesus uh, admonishes his followers to turn the other cheek, and he he throws every racial slur in Robinson's direction during a, this intense meeting that he has with Robinson before he signs him, and he asks Robert, and then he reads uh, this "turn your other cheek" passage to Robinson, and Robinson gets it. Hmm. He understands, even while he's sitting there, feeling the fury at being called all these names, that in defense of the greater good, that is advancing black Americans in Major League Baseball, he needs to sacrifice himself. That's exactly the type of personality that Ricky wanted.
0: Right. In the uh, essay by Mark Kurlansky, which is titled A Champion of Nonviolence, with a question mark, uh one of the things Kerlansky says about Jackie Robinson is that Jackie Robinson was naturally defiant and, uh, and, and spells out a number of different uh, incidents in Robinson's life uh, that, 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 that demonstrate that, including something that happened during his military career that uh, is, is akin to what Rosa Parks did on that city bus some years later. But in a sense, Jackie Robinson did it first. And, uh, and risked court-martial.
1: Right. Robinson was serving in Fort Hood at the time in Texas, and he was riding on a bus, a military bus, next to a light-skinned Black American woman. And the bus driver on this military bus uh, told Robinson to move to the back of the bus. And Robinson knew the law at the time which allowed for uh, black Americans, to sit wherever they wanted on military buses, and he protested. In fact, uh, the two, I believe, exchanged some intense curse words. Hmm. And the bus driver, sure enough, contacted some MPs, some military police officers, and one of them hurled the N-word at Robinson. And in response, Robinson says to the MPs, if anybody else calls me the N-word, I'm going to break your back. And that's who Robinson was. I'm glad Mark uh, Kerlansky talks about this in his essay. That's exactly who Robinson was. He was somebody who would always straighten his backbone if he could and raise his
0: fists
1: hmm. and fight back. I and mean, if we have any doubt about that, all we have to do is go to YouTube and watch clips of Robinson after his first year in Major League Baseball. And we see a man who constantly challenges what he considers bad calls against us. We see a man who slides hard into bases. We see a man who just rips around the bases and doesn't take anything uh, that is hurled his way. Hmm. And that's who Robinson was and his character. I think it's a shame, really, that we've sort of placed him on this pedestal and see him as a, a smiling baseball player who is non-threatening to white America. He wasn't. He was this huge threat to white America, especially after 47.
0: Hmm. I really appreciate a line from the essay that comes right before Mr. Kurlansky's, one by Jonathan Eig called Telling It the Right mm-hmm. Way, which, among other things, uh, explores the kind of the rather m- mythological story of Jackie Robinson's friendship with teammate Pee Wee Reese, which did not play out quite as poetically uh, in real life as, as one might have it. But, but one of my favorite lines from that really interesting essay is when uh, Jonathan Ige writes of Robinson, he swallowed the insults and turned them to muscle. What would you say? I mean, I know those aren't your words, but what would you, uh, what would you say Jonathan Ige is saying were there? He swallowed the insults and turned them to muscle.
1: Yeah, he really did. Uh, first, Jonathan Igg is a wonderful writer. Uh wrote about Muhammad Ali. He's now writing about Dr. King. Uh, he's just an incredible writer, and, and that sentence really gives nice insight into Jonathan's writings. Uh, but that's exactly what Robinson did. In 1947, he swallowed those insults and really focused on being the best player that he could be. Uh, That's who he was. Uh, You know, it was tough to do. And Rachel Robinson has told us that late at night, he would come home from the park. And after having swallowed all of these insults, and he would go into his bedroom late at night and kneel down and pray. And just when I picture Robinson all alone in his small apartment bedroom, uh, kneeling next to the bed. I still get chills when I think about that. Uh, he not only turned his body into physical muscle, he really turned his spirit into spiritual muscle as well. It's, I have no idea of everything that he had to take in 1947, but I do know that he became one hell of a baseball player and one great model to children across America, especially black boys and girls.
0: For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Michael G. Long, and we are talking about a brand-new book that he has edited called 42 Today, Jackie Robinson and His Legacy. This book is a wonderful collection of more than a dozen different essays by really fine writers weighing in on the life and legacy of uh, the immortal jackie robinson by the way i hope that you can clear up something that i found just a little bit confusing and that was uh, actually in a couple of different books that talk about the number that he wore that is number 42 as though that was in a sense kind of a kind of a big deal and uh I guess I don't know enough about the game of baseball to understand the significance of, of when a player is assigned a, a given number. And, of course, we've already touched on the fact that that number of 42 is now permanently retired from the, the game of professional baseball, a singular honor not given to any other number. Uh, can you just uh, take us inside that, that, that question of the number 42 that Jackie Robinson was assigned?
1: Sure. And I didn't know it either, Greg, to tell you the truth. Uh, Jonathan Igg introduced me to this information and really spelled it out for me. So I'm sort of giving you his research in it as well and his Mm -hmm. take uh, in the book. Igg tells us that 42 was a high number. It was not a number that was treasured at the time. In fact, it was at the back of the locker room, that type of number. Mm. Uh, There was only one other person in the Dodgers who had a number higher than 42. Uh, In fact, when Jackie Robinson showed up at the Dodgers locker room on that first day, he discovered that he didn't have a locker. Uh, His jersey was in just hanging on a peg. I think he was the only player maybe without a locker that day, which gives you some indication of maybe what the Dodgers staff uh, thought of Robinson's possibilities. They gave him a high number, uh, an unwanted number, an untreasured number at that time, and they gave him a peg uh, for his jersey to hang on. Now, there were other numbers available. Uh, Number four is a prize number. It's a smaller number. It's a lower number. Number two was also available. And one of those numbers, I believe, was given to Duke Snyder. Uh, My baseball fans out there will have to Uh, Forgive me for not knowing Duke's number right off the top of my head. But a a rookie that year, Duke Snyder, got one of the low numbers. Robinson didn't get it. So it was a number that was delivered to him, perhaps we could say, as a challenge. Maybe he saw it as a challenge. Uh, He saw it as a number that he had to live up to in some ways, or or I should say make make a number out of. In fact, that's what he did. We love 42 today, uh, not because it's a number that we know from history as a great number, but we know it as Jackie Robinson's number. It was a number that he made a number out of.
0: Hmm. Nobody
1: knew 42 before Jackie Robinson. Right. Uh, And the Dodgers weren't respecting him when they gave him 42. But we sure as heck know about it today.
0: Absolutely. And for the sake of any listeners who are not necessarily baseball fans, no major league baseball player now re- wears the name the number forty two, uh, except for the All Star game when everybody on the field wears number forty two to honor Jackie Robinson uh, and his and his legacy. We haven't yet explored anything that really goes beyond uh, Jackie Robinson's great great baseball career, and there is a lot in your book that is about uh, his his work in the civil rights movement and and so on, as well as his. His political activism and 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 so on. Um, in Yoshira Williams's uh, essay, she writes, "Those who knew him, Jackie Robinson, appreciated not only the complexity of his positions, but also his thoughtfulness in sharing them." Uh, enlighten us a little bit on the complexity of Jackie Robinson's positions and opinions on on various matters, social and political, and, and, and so on. This is a really uh, significant uh, element of, of who he was, and we don't understand him if we don't understand this aspect of him.
1: Yeah, Robinson said that he was a black man first and an American second, which gives you some insight, doesn't it, into his political positions. Uh, before I get into that, I have to just go back and say that Robinson really brought uh, Negro League Baseball to Major League Baseball, when we see somebody taking a long lead off of a base or when we see somebody dancing off the base or we, when we see somebody doing a hard slide or stealing home plate, uh, that's Jackie Robinson bringing Negro League Baseball, Black Baseball into Major League Baseball. Robinson always tried to inject Blackness into whatever, wherever he was, including politics, and when we look at his politics, the first thing we have to remember is that Robinson was devoted not to a particular party, not to a particular candidate, but to a particular position. He was always somebody who said, we need a more than a two-party system, but at least we need a two-party system. He didn't want black Americans to go to the Democratic Party back pocket or to the GOP back pocket. So in the case right now, uh, most black Americans, as we all know, are Democrats. Robinson thought that that was problematic. Uh, He described himself as an independent. Uh, In some ways, he was a Rockefeller Republican. Uh, But before I get into that, I would like to say that Robinson believed that black Americans should always suspend their votes and go with whichever candidate and whichever party most advanced civil rights for black Americans. Sometimes that led him to Democrats, and sometimes that led him to Republicans. In 19, In the 1960 presidential campaign, for example, Robinson believed that Nixon was more pro-civil rights than John F. Kennedy was. And so Robinson uh, took a sabbatical from his job as a vice president of personnel at Chuck Full of Nuts, a, a coffee chain company, and campaign full-time for Richard Nixon, which is just so baffling to me in some ways. But he did that because he believed uh, that Kennedy tanked uh, the 1957 Civil Rights Act at a certain time. He believed that Nixon uh, was very pro-civil rights, that he would move much faster on civil rights than Eisenhower ever did. Uh, So Robinson really went with whichever candidate, whichever party, most advanced civil rights. His favorite politician, I believe, well, I think he had two of them. One was Hubert Humphrey, the Democrats, liberal Democrat, and then the other was Nelson Rockefeller, a liberal Republican. So that gives you uh, some indication of his politics, hmm. his complicated politics.
0: Absolutely, to uh, to say the least. We uh, we learn in, uh, in the course of your book that Uh, Jackie Robinson engaged in a uh, heated war of words with Malcolm X and actually also had a falling out with Martin Luther King, somebody with whom he sometimes worked very, very well. But this also speaks to uh, Jackie Robinson's uh, complexity uh, as a human being and and as uh, someone who was part of the civil rights movement. Can you just say a quick word about his relationship with those two important men?
1: Sure. Uh, Robinson did not admire Malcolm X, to put it mildly. Uh, These two separated on two key issues. Robinson was a thoroughgoing integrationist. He believed that racial integration should be the goal for black Americans and white Americans and all people of color. So he was a racial integrationist. Malcolm X was not, Uh, at least early on. He believed in separatism and blacks separating themselves from whites, and even forming a separate black state. And this was early Malcolm early on. They also separated on the use of violence. Robinson was not nonviolent, but he did believe that the civil rights movement should dedicate itself to peaceful means and only peaceful means. And Malcolm X uh, believed that black Americans should be open to using any means necessary to defend themselves primarily and to advance civil rights. So they separated uh, themselves from each other on those two key points. And, wow, did they ever exchange some fiery words. So I'll just point to believe, the uh, listeners to the book uh, to, to get some feel for that. Now, Robinson also, he deeply admired Martin Luther King. He loved King. King was his hero in many ways and And Robinson was Dr. King's hero in many ways as well. But they did split over the issue of Vietnam. Uh, Dr. King was a black Baptist minister in the deepest recesses of his heart, he said, and in, in and in the deepest recesses of his heart. He was also a pacifist who believed that Jesus taught nonviolence. Mm-hmm. Robinson believed, that the use of violence was okay when pursuing democracy in war, and so he didn't respect doc- he respected Dr. King's position, but he sharply criticized him in public. I mean, it was pointed criticism as well. You know, they had this they had this major difference between them, and Dr. and Robinson invited Dr. King to respond, and Dr. King responded not in public, and not through a newspaper column. Uh, But by calling Jackie late at night, and uh, Robinson picked up the phone, and as soon as he heard the voice, uh, Dr. King's voice was sort of like yours, Greg, really beautiful and resonant and deep. And they had this moving conversation about Vietnam. And Jackie had a son who had served in Vietnam, Jackie Jr., and had earned a Purple Heart. And King didn't have that type of experience. Uh, He wasn't coming out of that experience, but he had a very heartfelt conversation. And Dr. King did not convince Robinson to become an anti-Vietnam War uh, activist by any stretch of the imagination. But at the end of that conversation, Robinson had even deeper respect for Dr. King, which was a very difficult thing to do because of how much respect he had for him.
0: Hmm. I want to mention that your book includes an interesting essay in which we learn of Jackie Robinson' interest in, in black female athletes such as Wilma Rudolph and, 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 and others mm. and, and, and did what he could to, to encourage them. I think a really important point on which to end, uh, I think, points to uh, the mistakes we sometimes make in interpreting who somebody is. And this is around the question of whether or not Jackie Robinson was bitter, or, in a sense, overly angry. In, in later life, and uh, there is an essay in which this question is posed to his widow, and she responds, "I don't think, uh, I don't think he was bitter. He had a healthy aggressiveness. He was outspoken, ready for battle. That's different from being bitter." Can you say more about this facet of, of of sort of his public persona, particularly in his later years, and and the truth behind these words from his Widow.
1: Yeah, in fact, that's those words are so interesting to me. Rob, Rachel really wants us to see Jack as somebody at the end of his life who was not bitter and not overly angry, but frustrated. He was frustrated with the way white America was acting politically. Uh, this was the Nixon era. He was even frustrated with Nelson Rockefeller at the end of his life for slashing welfare programs and and for acting too lightly in the Attica State Prison Uprising. Uh, He was frustrated, I think, with the uh, violence of some black militants. You know, the road just hadn't turned as he wanted. So at the end of his life, he was uh, quite frustrated. And I think that's what Rachel really wants us to know. And what a loving relationship they had you know at the end of his life uh Robinson was taking a shower and Rachel was in the kitchen and she heard him call out uh her name she knew something was wrong and she ran to see him and he had come out of the shower they met in the hallway uh he hugged he said he loved her and he collapsed and died and they were deeply in love and I think those words that we just heard from Rachel are testament to the love that she had for him. Hmm.
0: It's an amazing book. It truly is. Again, it's titled Forty-Two Today, Jackie Robinson and His Legacy. Um, uh, Thirteen different fine writers uh, collaborating in an array of essays. And there's also a, a very nicely written forward by Ken Burns, Sarah Burns, and David uh, 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 McMahon that uh, also spell out uh, much that makes Jackie Robinson such uh, a compelling figure. The book is published by New York University Press and the editor of this book, Michael G. Long. Michael G. Long, I'm so glad we got to talk about this marvelous book. Uh, And thank you so much for your, uh, your work in putting it together and bringing it to the world.
1: Craig, it's been wonderful chatting with you. Thanks for the great questions.
0: You're listening to the Wednesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. For part two of today's program, uh, you're going to hear an interview recorded and initially broadcast back in 2005. I have found myself profoundly moved by a new novel by Tayari Jones. And perhaps you know her name because of uh, her first novel, which received all kinds of acclaim, called Leaving Atlanta. Uh, That book was set in Atlanta, Georgia, against the backdrop of a number of murders which claimed the lives of of young African-American children, and uh, three youngsters living amidst that fear were the the central figures in this uh, beautifully constructed book. Her new novel is a very, very moving one as well, a very, very personal book, a personal story, I should say, which uh, follows... Uh, the life of of a woman named Ariadne Jackson who experiences something very very sorrowful in her childhood and it's something which marks her uh, for many many years after that and uh, at least indirectly leads her uh, into the path of lies which uh, really bring her some, some further hurt it's a book which is uh, in the best sense of the word most meaningful sense of the word is profoundly thought provoking and uh I'm really grateful uh, for the opportunity to speak with Tiyari Jones about her newest novel, which is published by Warner Books. Tiyari Jones, we welcome you to the Morning Show.
2: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Uh, I note in your biography that you are an English professor at the University of of uh, Illinois. Uh, how do you balance uh, your teaching and uh, and your career as a writer?
2: You know, I don't really try to balance it. I try to, like, integrate them. You know, because sometimes you feel like you have to choose. But what I've learned how to do is to use my teaching of writing to help me teach myself better writing. Oh. Yeah, and my students also, my students inspire me. When you're around people all day who are working on writing, it makes it where I think about writing even more than I normally do. So it's been terrific for me.
0: Very good. Is writing something which... uh sort of ignited your passions even early on in your life?
2: I wanted to write when I, was a, when I was a very little girl. When I was about eight years old, I wanted to write books. I used to write little stories, and I would try to get my mother to take them to her job and laminate them for me. Because for me, like, lamination was the equivalent of preparing it for the archives.
0: Ah, very good. Well, this uh, second novel of yours, The Untelling, is certainly a, a beautiful creation. First of all, the, the very title, The Untelling, I think is, is, is very, very interesting and kind of speaks to uh, the matter of, of, of deceit and dishonesty. Uh, but it's an interesting way to put it. Uh, how did you come up with the, the word untelling?
2: Well, I like it because it does speak of dishonesty, but it also speaks of how to repair those things. I mean, as a writer, I don't want to just be, you know, diagnostic and say what all what's wrong. I also like to think about ways that we can fix things, ways that we can make ourselves and our communities more whole. So I came to the idea of untelling, because um, the question is, can you untell a lie, and how would you go about it? And what I came up with is is that you can't necessarily untell something, but it is our moral and spiritual obligation to try and do that. Mm.
0: Uh, As I already touched on, uh, what what sets the story uh, in motion for this central figure, Ariadne, uh, Ariadne Jackson is uh, a, a very sad incident when she is a young girl is she eight or nine or something like she's that about
2: yes yeah, she's going on 10 and her family is in a terrible car accident that claims the life of her father and the real question of this book is how do you move forward while still honoring the memory because everyone in the story has an idea of the best way to best way to heal, the best way to move forward. But um, Arya, she's trying to sort it all out, and I think she ultimately is the one who comes up with the best
0: plan. Mm. Um, It's intriguing the way in which she is haunted by this this car accident and the death of her father. I mean, the the accident itself is is one thing, but in some respects what haunts her even more is kind of an inadvertent mistake she makes as, as a child in failing to respond to her her father's pleas for help and it's not out of indifference but just one of those quirky little things i suppose that a little child will do but this really has long-term emotional ramifications for her
2: yes she is you know she becomes she's frightened she doesn't know what to do she's not really capable when she's a, a girl to do what she would imagine to be the heroic thing And everyone in the family suffers from something. And often, you know, we have secrets, this moment where we think it's the big thing we did wrong or something that you cloak and hide for so many years. And then when you finally confess it, people may not even think it's as important as you do. You know, it becomes a creature of your own imagination. And it's it's almost like your own private torturer that you carry around with you. And sometimes the healing is in the telling.
0: Mm. We Leave. I guess it's it's uh, like the prologue of the book, and then uh, into the experience of of Aria Jackson uh, years later, living in in Atlanta, uh, her encounters with her her mother and sister and good friend and her boyfriend, and eventually this misstep which she makes into deceit. I don't know that we should tell. No, our listeners we should not too much more than that. Uh, but what intrigued you or what first brought you the idea of of exploring a lie uh, with this kind of depth? I mean, what, what led you to think that it would be something fertile enough to, to center a whole novel around?
2: Well, you know, I grew up in Atlanta, and Atlanta is a story that's built on myths. And I tried to touch on that in the novel, in The Untelling... That Atlanta is a place where there are a lot of stories about how we explain where we are, and I chose the neighborhood even that I chose the neighborhood that is half gentrified. Everyone keeps saying this neighborhood is on the rise. Just wait and see. It's almost like a whole city in denial about the real estate in that part of the in that part of the town and the way that all these people live their lives on this landscape. And so I just started kind of going from there. It's kind. Of, I know most of the time you start from characters and built out, but this time I started from setting and built in and I think in many ways too, Atlanta is a city that is built around a tragedy in my generation the um, memory of Atlanta is always going to be shaped for me around the Atlanta child murders the subject of my first novel and Atlanta in a larger way is a city that is built around the idea that it was burned in the Civil War so I built on like that kind of cultural and regional issue and then took the same kinds of problems and say how did it affect what what is the burning of atlanta for this one family which was this car accident and then how do they cope and then i came up with this idea that a lot of times people young women who want to escape from their from their childhood they get the idea that they should like marry and. Institute a new family, because once you're married, when people say, who's your family, you can point at your husband. And Mm then I thought, well, what if that doesn't work? And it kind of grew from there.
0: Wow. Um, I want to say, too, that I I, am impressed with the characters that you have created here, in that uh, it seems to me you've really told that tricky line of of making these real people uh, flaws and all, and yet not with so many flaws that we don't really like them and, and, and really want good things for them and, and genuinely feel badly when, when things go badly for them. Um, the creation of those kind of characters, I think, is, is a really tricky thing.
2: Well, it's and it's also it's a gamble. I mean, I did have some struggles with my publisher about it because they, they tell me that people like to read books where you read the character and say, that's exactly what I would do. And I just really wasn't interested in giving the reader a mirror instead of a novel. I wanted to look into the lives of people who were flawed and see how people make mistakes and also how they genuinely change their lives. And so I just tried to get close to everyone and also view all the characters with kind of a really an open mind. And like when I was writing, for example, Cynthia, the um, crack addict who lives a few houses down, to think at one point, Cynthia was someone's daughter. She was You know, she's a person too, and just try to really go in there and also imagine how they might see themselves and what would their side of the story be, and just try to keep check your prejudices at the door. I think is a good way to get to that humanity of all the characters.
0: Right, and although most of the novel focuses around kind of a of a uh, cataclysmic decision which uh, Aria Jackson makes, uh, a moment of deceit, and then trying to deal with that. Uh, we're given lots of wonderful details in their lives, which make this story feel so authentic. One of them, very early in the book, actually, when when their uh, apartment or small house is broken into, and uh, and you write so tellingly about what it is like to come home and discover that you know the the door's been broken in and someone's been in your home, and this intense desire to feel safe again. Uh, I I read that and and thought that for the first time I really had some inkling of what that must feel like. And of course for for people living in certain neighborhoods it's a very persistent sort of of fear with which they live.
2: Yes, and also Aria's situation is also a little complicated because she and her roommate live in this neighborhood because they're trying to make a difference. They teach adult literacy and this idea that you know, you go into this neighborhood with the best intentions, and they find themselves having the same experience with people who live there for other reasons. And they, they have to kind of face, the, face their privilege and what that means and their expectations, and they have to decide whether or not they want to keep living there. And I think that's the kind of dilemma for a lot of people who work nonprofit or do, you know, other kinds of good works. that when you're helping, you also put yourself in harm's way. And so this is something they have to grapple with daily their decision to help. Like how much are you trying are you willing to risk for what you believe in?
0: Right. And I guess that's part of what makes this whole story and these characters seem so very, very authentic because you you give the right amount of attention to that kind of reality and that makes this feel like it's a little slice of real life.
2: Well you know, thank you, because this novel went through three complete drafts very different before I got it to where it was going, where it is now. Sometimes when you write a novel, sometimes they can just die. You can work so hard on it and the novel will just die and you'll have nothing to show for it. And there was more than one occasion when I didn't know if this one was going to pull through.
0: Hmm. Well, it pulled through, it did. And more than that, Uh, the book is beautifully done and again called The Untelling, published by Warner Books, the author, Tiari Jones. Tiari Jones, I congratulate you on this uh, beautiful second novel. Uh, you're also the author, of course, of Leaving Atlanta. And uh, we wish you well with uh, all the books which you create in the future, and I thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show.
2: Thanks for having me.